This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the Hill Country Authors Podcast. Not only is the Texas Hill Country the most beautiful place in Texas, but it also has some of the best writers in Texas. On this podcast series, I'm going to explore writers in literally all genres of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I hope you'll join me in this journey. In this inaugural episode, I'm joined by Mike Capps, writer of The Grinders. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Mike Capps. Mike is the co-author of a book called Grinders, Baseball's Intrepid Infantry. Mike, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, Tom, it's, it's, uh, I love podcasts, and you come highly recommended from Lauren Steffi, my publisher, and obviously, two guys like you want to do this, let's do it, man. I'm looking forward to it. So, as everyone who reads my blog and listens to my podcast knows, I am an uber baseball fan. Went to Colt Stadium, saw Stan mm-hmm. Musial's last game. Yep. I moved to Bryan, listened to the Astros at night every night with Gene Elston and Lowell Howe, lived and died through 2004 and five, and got to the promised land once. It's been a great ride. Love baseball, season ticket holder for a long time. But that's not what you wrote about. So actually, maybe we should start with what do you do now and what's your professional background? Let's see. Let's talk first about the 25 years in the television news business. I was a young police beat reporter at, for Ray Miller at KPRC-TV in Houston in the early 70s. And that led on to WFAA-TV in Dallas and on to ABC and then to CNN as a correspondent. I covered the Gulf War. I was in 80 when they overthrew Aristide. I had, gosh, the Waco siege for all 66 days and two weeks past that. And have always been involved in baseball, played baseball in college, wrote a book with a scout who discovered Nolan Ryan, who had the same scout that scouted me in high school. And I ran into a lot of stress issues after my stint and uh, had to have therapy. And baseball became a huge part of that therapy. And I got started in an independent league, the Texas-Louisiana League, after making two phone calls. And the next year, I'm in AAA. And the next year after that, I'm doing fill-in major league games on, on ESP. And then I got the gig in Round Rock. And I've been in Round Rock since they started as the radio broadcaster for the Round Rock Express. That's, I as, forget it. that's as much as I can combine it. Before I forget and before we get into your book, I have to ask about Ray Miller. Sure. Ray Miller, in my opinion, was one of the most beloved broadcasters, producers, certainly in in the Houston area and in my mind across the state of Texas. What was it like working for Ray Miller? I want to tell you, when you were 23 years old and you grew up watching him as I did, it was like died and gone to heaven time. Ray was a former submarine captain in World War II, as intense a human being in the news business as I ever met, as demanding a boss, but it challenged you every single day and loved him to death, broke my heart when he died, but learned so many lessons from him. And uh, his assistant was a fellow named Larry and are still friends to this day. Larry later became one of the top news producers at NBC News for 40 years, and we still stay in close touch. And Larry has read this book of mine, and he said, 
where did you learn to write like that? And I said, Ray Miller, write like people talk. That was his mantra. And so that's where it all started. I've told two or three different people, my college baseball teammates, my wife, my kids. And, uh, and it's very simply this. I could not have done this book without you. And if Ray was still alive, I told Larry Weidman uh, the same thing. I couldn't have done this book without them and their influence in so many ways. Uh, if you're in the baseball business, and I have been now for 26 years, and you don't have a great baseball wife, you are in trouble because it's so demanding. You think about it. We start in April and we're about to finish in another 10 days. And it's just nonstop. And you either can do it or you can't. And if you don't have a family that supports you, it's nigh on to impossible, Tom, to really have a good career at this. Mike, where'd you go to college? Sam Houston State. After I went to college, junior college, to play baseball. And the coach and I got on the outs. And I transferred down to Sam Houston and began a broadcast career there. So let's well, just talk, talk about the book. Grinders. You've been with uh, Round Rock, you said, for 21 years. Why this, your love of minor league baseball players and their role in our joint love of baseball started a long time ago with a great line from your grandfather. Could you tell us about that? You being a baseball fan, you'll probably remember if you didn't see the place, there was a little ballpark built in 1910 across the Trinity River from downtown Dallas. And my grandfather used to take me out there from from age eight until they built Turnpike Stadium where the double-A Spurs played. And that that was expanded to the original stadium the Rangers played in, Arlington Stadium. But we sat and talked. He had been a Pirates prospect before World War I intervened and cost him hearing. In an, but we're seated at a game in 1950, no, 1960 at Old Burnett Field, it was called. Minneapolis Millers, AAA team of the Red Sox, Dallas-Fort Worth Rangers, AAA team of the Kansas City Athletics. My grandfather points to the guy in left field. Everybody took at infield and outfield, if you'll remember in those days, even in the big leagues. I watched infield and outfield at Colt Stadium, and I bet you did too. They all took My grandfather points to this guy and left. Is that kid's going to be something. He was at Carl Yastrzemski, and he had some check marks on his score sheet players on both sides. I said, what are those? He said, those are guys that are going to bounce back and forth between Boston and Minneapolis and Dallas, Fort Worth and Kansas city. You'll see their names um, in the box scores from time to time, <clears throat> but sooner or later, they'll be back down here. And he said, those are the guys that drive baseball's bus. Tom, that verbiage stuck with me. And I woke up, we, I, Chuck Hartenstein, who's no longer with us, is listed as a co-author. Chuck helped me through a lot of stuff here, player identification, people we wanted to put on. But the whole point of that is, is that I had to have a lot of help with this. And Chuck being a grinder, my grandfather was a grinder in world wars and oil and gas business. They just set that tone. End of the day, we're at Chuck's house, beers and steaks, my wife Karen and me. Chuck and Joyce and Bill Mercer, the original voice of the Texas Rangers. And we're swapping these, as Chuck used to say, we come over and drink Budweiser and swap lies. And my wife stood up and said, you guys got to write these down. In January of 2018, I woke up in the middle of the night with all this stuff just exploding out of my head, writing notes, 
just like crazy, called Chuck, called Joyce. We went over to their house again, and we went through probably 200 names before we, we finally picked. And Chuck passed away before the book came out and actually before I finished writing. And we came up with the names of these 43 people that we wanted to profile. And that's how the whole thing got started. But my grandfather's verbiage, the engine that drives baseball's bus. If your grinders can't beat the other team's grinders, you're not going to win. You simply are not. Everybody, what nobody has over three or four stars, but everybody wanted to write about star. Everybody writes about stars. I could not find anywhere that anybody had written in 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 mass quantities about guys who are bouncing up and down and the things that are told it takes on families and the disappointment, the heartbreak, and yet getting up off the deck time after time. And then you add the, the Rocky analogy to that. And it just made sense to write it. And Lauren Steffi, the publisher, picked up on it and away we went. So for those who don't know, and I'm sorry to have to ask this, please explain what a baseball scorecard is. Okay. You don't see them anymore. You go to, well, you call a 45s game. I don't know about you. I'm going to backtrack a second to get to this, but I was so excited. I was like 11 years old when the Colt 45s came, and my dad made sure that we saw all those guys like Chow and Drysdale and Koufax. They'd hand you – well, you didn't hand – it was 10, to, 10 cents to a quarter. They'd hand you a cardboard piece of paper, and it had advertising all over it, but it had uh, the lineups and the bench players and all this kind of thing. And you, you actually had a chance to – you could keep score – during the game. And my grandfather was huge at that. And he even kept score at my high school and college baseball games for crying out loud. So that's how devoted he was to it. But that's where the scorecard. So my story starts with my grandfather, but was for a different reason to shut me up. He taught me and made me keep score at every game for him. Excellent. And every couple of innings, he would want to recap. And that's how I knew I had to keep up with it. And so I just did it as a matter of course. For some reason, I kept doing it. I still do it to this day. Love doing it. And uh, what I discovered is you can keep score, watch a game, entertain a three-year to four-year-old daughter, play I Spy, all at the same time. Keeping score is near and dear to my heart. And uh, so I really appreciated that. Let me turn to minor league baseball. What, what, in your opinion, is the difference between minor league baseball and the big leagues? Oh, talent level, consistency in talent level. We have kids that play for us for the Round Rock Express, the AAA affiliate of the Rangers, who talent-wise could step in and play in the big leagues. The problem is consistency, whether it's a pitcher or a hitter, outfielder, infielder, catcher, whatever. Major League Baseball looks for a level of consistency and these kids have a triple-A plus talent. They're world-class baseball players at this level. And you see some games when the game is pristine, when you don't have a lot of errors, you don't have a lot of wild pitches and that sort of thing, would remind you of a big league game. Uh, we had a player, for instance, earlier this year named Bubba Thompson, who got promoted in July to the Rangers. He had already stolen 50 bases in attempts before he went to the big leagues. And so that's the kind of talent you have. Bubba's doing fine. Bubba's going to be a center fielder for somebody, whether it's the Rangers or not, I don't know. But he's in their regular lineup every day. He's playing left. 
and I've always thought he had Laody Tavares was there. He started as that said bottom line of the matter, it's one time she said, I, I, I got a question and I turned to her calls and get like they do in 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 triple A anyway. I'm I'm sure I've wandered the court a little bit, but but back. A couple of things. One is one of the reasons I use this software is it's recording locally. So you're not being, whatever degradation you might be seeing or hearing from me, that's not what's being recorded. That's up in the cloud. So hopefully we got all that. The second thing is you managed to end your answer right when you clipped off. So that was convenient. And we just pick back up and go from there. Okay. So actually you ended with, I may have wandered off there, but I hope that's okay. So away I went. (laughs) Yeah. And so the really the last point I was going to pick up on was the difference in minor league levels, which you touched on just a little bit at the end. Same countdown and we will continue. And this is so I know where to edit. Okay. I'm going to take a five second silent count. Mike, how about the differences between the levels in minor league play? You've already mentioned the independent league in Texas, and I actually looked at buying one of those franchises way back in the day. But there is a big difference in minor league levels. Could you talk about that a little bit? Let's start. We don't have rookie ball anymore. I'm not sure why, but we don't. But you got the men from high school and college. They are guys with talent, identified. But, and I got to be honest with you, I'm not an expert seeing that many A-ball games to be able to explain it thoroughly. That said, it's like any other craft. You have journeymen in the plumbing business, electric, the electrical business. This is the same way it is when you start an A-ball, and then you get the high A, double A, <clears throat> then the triple A, and then the big league. So let's just, if we can compare it with everyday life, with let's just say plumbers you get to a certain grade and then you're a master plumber that's the big leagues of plumbing you have all this to learn and the game is so much different when you come from college or high school you've used a metal bat it's just a different game it plays differently it sounds differently than wood bats and end of the day the kids are hustling they're doing the best they can and just get better and better every step of the way. But once you get to double A, a scout will tell you, scouts in general will tell you that by the time a kid gets to double A, he's pretty much identified himself as a potential big leaguer. And then the polish really has to come on and come on quickly to see how far he can take that talent. And then by the time you get triple A, you really have some a lot of world-class talent on both sides every single night. You used a word that I wanted to focus on, and that was craft. And what one of the things I've loved about watching minor leaguers is seeing the results of them having worked on their craft, the craft of baseball, because it really is a craft. I understand it's throwing, hitting, and catching. But within those three, there's a lot of craft. What's it? What do you see? How do you see minor leaguers work on their craft? Is that part of the grind or is that just what you do to become that level? You got me off on a subject now that really is near and dear to my heart. I don't, 
I don't see as much infield and field practice now at the AAA level as I used to, that we are at the point where we have the master craftsmen in baseball that we do. You can go to the big leagues and you can see some plays that you that you shake your head at, even in AAA. Guys just don't seem to have the talent, the craft level that you're talking about. And I think it happens because they don't learn the fundamentals as, as exclusively as they did maybe 15, 20 years ago. That said, the end of it is much, much better than it was 15, 20 years ago. I can attest to that because I've seen it. So if that's where you're headed with that, that's my thought on it. And it's and I just think that it is part of the grind, but the other side of it is you got to know that going into it. No matter how hot it is, you need to be out doing some work in the sunshine before a game. And we just honestly don't see that as much as we used to. Where that all works out, how it works out is anybody's guess. And then you throw the analytics side of it in there, and that's a whole different game. We've always had numbers in this game, but the application of them to launch angles and exit velocities and war and all these other terms that are used in analytics I think have complicated the game, at least from the player standpoint, where I think sometimes you wonder when you see a play or you see an at bat, you wonder if there's not information over or overload going. The overthinking it, it really yes. is in many ways a game. You started off a little bit earlier talking about players who go up and down. You used the term bounce up and down and you hinted at, really the emotional toll it takes. We as sports fans, when somebody comes up for the first time, we get to celebrate that. We get to celebrate their first at bat, their first pitch, their first complete game, or their first game they pitch, rather. And it can be a bonus baby, 18-year-old. I've seen 31 and 32-year-olds in their very first game. And it's clearly emotional for them. Could you speak a little bit about that and the other part of that, which is, yeah, you may get sent up, but you may get sent back. Yeah, you may get sent up, and nowadays you can get sent back unless you're completely, completely ready to take over a position in the big leagues, and not a lot of guys are. Let me let me point out one. You came across, you made a statement about up and down. There was a first-round draft pick, and you're going to know this name because you're an Astros fan, named Alan Zenner. And Zenner was the first-round draft pick out of El Paso, in the late 80s and never got to the big leagues until he made it with the Astros 15, 16 years down the line. Now, can you imagine, he's a first-round draft pick, and everybody in the Mets organization tried to change his approach. And he'd been taught by a father who played college baseball. And if you look at tape of Allen when he had started in professional baseball, it's hard to find a flaw in his swing, but yet they monkeyed with his swing and he lost confidence and bounced around and finally made it to the Astros and made it to the Diamondbacks later on. But he's 34, 35 years old. And now he's a hitting coach with the Cincinnati Reds. But the story, the up and down of that is in Grinders. And it's similar to a lot of the stories there. And it's just the, the axiom, the words that stick to my mind about this. It's one thing, I've heard many players say this, many coaches, many managers. It's one thing 
to make it to the big leagues. It's another to stay. And that's the art form. That's the, uh, that's the cross to bear once you're there is finding enough playing time, finding enough at bats. Old scouts used to say it, it's really not correct behavior for front offices to bring a kid up, give him 12 to 14 at bats, sit him for three or four days, give him five or six more at bats, and then send him down. Why do you even do that? That makes no sense. To, until you can give a kid 140 at bats, that's the old scouts axiom. You're not really going to know who you have as a hitter. The same thing, you need 100 innings in the big leagues to really figure out if this kid's going to be a starter or reliever. We're so bound and determined in this industry now. Quick fix, quick band-aid. What can this kid do? How many players do you see that come up and stay without going back down? Then the kid has to explain to his family and the disappointment. And the longer you go into it, the more time you have invested and your family has invested, the bigger the disappointment it is, it seems to me. And we outline this in Grinders quite a bit because it's so tangential to the game and what it is, was, and has been. Mike, I'd like to turn now to the institutional history of baseball. So I've always been a fan. I feel like I can sit down and talk to probably any other American male about baseball and know a little bit about their team, when their team might have gone to the World Series, who the stars were at a bar, at a baseball game, at a picnic. at a, And that's part of why I think baseball has been so successful. But I wanted to ask you about that institutional knowledge within the game. So you mentioned the guy, Al, Alan, Alvin, rather, who is now the hitting coach with Cincinnati. And we see players spend their, some players spend their entire careers grinding, I'm going to use that word, in the arena. That could be in the minor leagues. That could be as a position coach in the major leagues. And, but it seems to me that's also the way we learn. You guys who are profession within the profession learn, and me as fans get to hear and, and hear those stories and learn. I wondered if you'd give a few thoughts of really about the institutional history and the institutional knowledge of baseball itself. Let's just take Alan Zinner for an example. He made first round draft money. It was not the big money, but he stuck with it, played in Japan, and all the time over a 17, 18, 19-year playing career, he acquired, Tom, so much knowledge of the game, had seen so many situations, and always had wanted to coach. And when he did, it had to start with the rookies, and he loved that because he was able to go back to his days and recall and remember how difficult it was for him for the Mets to have changed his entire approach but that's, a, that's an important lesson for him to have learned as a hitting coach. Let these kids show you who they are, and you tweak and refine what they do. That's one of the gifts of this game. Oh, the great coaches and the great managers who've been around for so many years and had so much success, we have, we're, we've gone to a trend over the last three or four years, much younger managers in the minor leagues than we used to have. We had a long-time Houston native and major league player and coach named Jackie Moore, who was our manager in double-A and triple-A when we first started in Round Rock. And Jackie got almost 60 years in the game. Can you imagine 
getting to play for Jackie Moore, who had who'd been the bench coach for the Rockies when they won a world's championship for the Cincinnati Reds, when they won a world's championship for the Texas Rangers, when they won a world championship and for the Astros, that knowledge base. And that's amazing. But that shows you what a guy who really wants to stay in this game and institutionally front offices still recognize to a certain degree how important it is to have those guys who've been in those trenches failed succeeded and learned from their failures to pass that along to young players it's just so essential think about your work think about my relationship with ray milk ray had been in that business forever and ever and became a terrific news director and a terrific leader i not had him in my early 20s god knows what kind of reporter i would have become i certainly would have made it cnn i tell you that but baseball just exists for these people who who have made the bus rides and have been there and done that and seen what works and see what doesn't, see how managers and coaches relate to young players, what worked for them and what didn't. That goes in deeply embedded into your mind if you're a coach or a player. And to sit and have the chance to watch this work and watch these guys work together, it's really a thrill for me every day to go to the ballpark because I can walk in that clubhouse today and I'm heading to the clubhouse. We're in Tacoma, Washington for six straight days. I'm going to go down there and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I'll get the tenor and tone of what's going on and how these guys are feeling. We just lost five of six in El Paso. We're five games out with nine games left to play. And – Let's see what these guys got. Tacoma's playing very well now. They're the Mariners AAA affiliate. The Mariners are going great. So we're going to have our hands full. But I want to see, I want to hear what coaches say, the manager says, and what some of the kids say. And it's all part of the institution. And it's great. And people ask, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, and if they get confused, I say, let's put it like this. I steal money. They laugh. And, but my deal is this, and I'll bet you, Tom Fox, you'll understand this better than it. If you're in, if you're in a gig and you love it, you wake up thinking about it, you go to sleep thinking about it, it becomes a part of who you are. That's what these grinders are. They'll, it will never leave their heart and soul. And it's why it was so much fun to, to sit and interview each one and to get their stories because it's all involved in this big thing you call the institution of baseball. And it's, if you don't feel like you can give to kids, what are you even doing it for? It's it, Selfishly, you can take your money and go, that's fine. But if you're interested in, in, in giving back, it's there for you to do. Did that answer your question? I was at a podcast conference once and uh, someone asked me, uh, what's the hardest thing about podcasting? And I thought a minute and I said, there's nothing hard about podcasting. I get to talk to the smartest people in the world and have fun doing it. Doesn't get any better than this. So 110%, I get it. I knew, so, I knew you were. I knew you were. Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But before we go, where can people purchase grinders? Yeah, if you want to get it quickly, Amazon is always the best. It's in the Barnes and Noble catalog. If they don't have it at your Barnes and Noble, they'll get it for you. But I'm telling everybody, if you want it quickly, by all means, Amazon with Barnes and Noble as a backup. And if you can catch up with me in Austin, Texas in the off season, I'll be happy to sign it. 
So Mike, I'm definitely going to take you up on that offer. I wanted to thank you again. We've been visiting with Mike Caps, co-author of Grinders. Great story about baseball. And Mike, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Tom, anytime. I'm here. Enjoy it. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hill Country Authors Podcast. I hope you'll join me again in a couple of weeks where I have another Hill Country author to visit with. The Hill Country Podcast has a sister podcast, which is the Hill Country Podcast. We are both proud members of the Hill Country Podcast Network. I hope you will check us out. Thanks so much for listening.